Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. And this is the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Get ready for 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the stud. Now please welcome the originator of the Studcast and the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Studcast. Let's step back into the ring and back into time with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. What's up, my man, Ron? Yeah, man. Well, it's it's been a lot up, Dave. I know you're aware of that, too. And as everybody out there listening is, it's been a difficult week the last week. But, you know, we've made it through. And uh, and luckily, you know, I think uh, we had a pretty decent uh, tribute that we paid. And thank you for joining me for that one, Dave. Uh, to Bob Armstrong and actually the Armstrong family as a whole. And and that uh, that pleases me. It, it really was an honor to be a part of that tribute and to, to have your family there and talking about the Armstrong family. But it really has been a very trying week, especially because you and Bob were just very close for many years, as we've known for quite some time. So and you attended the service on Saturday. What was it like? Well, it was a beautiful service. Uh, I have to say that for it. Uh, there was a, a video piece that was probably 10 minutes long of uh, Bob uh, receiving Christmas presents uh, from grandchildren and just his interaction with uh, all of those grandkids and a couple of great grandkids. Uh, it was beautiful to watch. And then they showed a little bit of him, some matches here and there. And uh, it was a beautiful piece, a uh, great sermon by the preacher who who was really familiar with the family, uh, knew the history. Uh, it was all great. Uh, Charlie Platt did about a 10-minute, uh, maybe a little more than 10-minute uh, presentation about uh, his feelings for Bob and his history with Bob. Uh, it was all in all, it was a beautiful ceremony. And there were so many wrestlers there, lots of different wrestlers from all over the country. And at the same time, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to speak personally with Steve and Brian and and uh, Scott, uh, all the sons that are still alive, and it was it was really good. Uh, you know, it, it was along quite a ways from where I drove to get there, but I, I told uh, the person who was riding with me when we left. I said uh, after it was over, I said I would have driven twice as far as we did. Wow, oh, you know, no. you know, it, it was it was well worth it. And then I'm going to do my next Super Stud cast as another tribute to Bob. 
and I haven't told this yet, but uh, I have about an hour of audio that I did with him probably six weeks ago, probably the last interview that Bob ever did. And, uh, and I'm going to use some of that. And then I have a list of wrestlers that want to be on this one with me. This last one we did was just me and my family. But the next one will be me and wrestlers from all over the world that just uh, really want a few minutes to just say something nice about Bob Armstrong. I think the Super Stud cast will just be three hours of, of phenomenal wrestling history and uh, maybe some tears in that one, too. You know, you, you mentioned that one hour that you spent with Bob and you and Bob sat down with the intention of really covering all of his life. But you you only got an hour's worth, which was a lot. And it covered the early part of his life. But sadly, you just ran out of time. Yeah. I mean, he, he got to where he was so sick that he couldn't do anymore. And, uh, you know, and I and obviously I didn't want to push him uh, to do anymore either. Yeah. You know, when he didn't feel up to it. But uh, I'm lucky to get what we've got. And I think fans that listen to that, will they will learn something new about Bob that they didn't know. And uh, as you said, we start with his beginning of his career. And we get to just about the time frame that we're in in today's Studcast <laughs> in 1976, oddly enough. So uh, really looking forward to, to, to getting that released. And that will be released on Tuesday, uh, September 15th. And, and uh, I look for uh, fans to... I just want to thank the fans, too. I'm glad we're kind of starting with this, Dave, because the tremendous comments. I have never done anything on social media that got the reaction that that this tribute got. Uh, It's just amazing what fans feel and felt about Bob Armstrong. uh, It just says everything about the man he was. And uh, it's just uh, I'm glad we did the tribute. It was fun for me and my family. It was important to us. And his boys really, really enjoyed it. All three of them just told, they were just wow, Ron. It was just amazing. So, uh, you know, that's, that's what this is all about. That's what these podcasts are all about. It's about being able to express ourselves, not video wise, but audio wise. And, uh, it's an important thing that we do here. You know, I'm really realizing it, that an event like this with Bob really brings it home, you know, just how important sitting in this chair and doing what we do is to people out there listening. Oh, without a doubt. And don't forget, and, and folks are, I know folks are looking for more stuff on Bob. Super Studcast number five is three hours plus with you and Bob Armstrong and a lot of conversation. I know you guys covered a tremendous amount of ground with that because three hours plus, that's just a lot of information. So, and that literally goes back a couple of years. You can find it at patreon.com slash studcast. And it's also available at tnstud.com under the super studcast category. That's awesome. Now, Ron, last time we were on the regular studcast, there was some headbanging going on. And I'm not talking about two heads against each other. I'm talking about a sledgehammer and then a concrete block and then a head involved. Yeah. <laughs> Is that where we're picking up this week? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just let's start the day on our ride. Uh, let's go back and just kind of uh, pick up to where we left off before the tribute to Bob. Two weeks ago, two stud casts ago, basically, we finished that three-part today's training, the biggest one, the longest one we'd ever had. And it started with our Booker hats on, and it finished with Joe LaDuke and the Mongolian Stomper on TV breaking concrete blocks on their heads. I mean, wow. 
It's just, it's still, it's still a marvel to think about it and, and to see it when you watch the video of it. And I want to thank all the listeners that's complimented us on those three studcasts as well, you know, the, all three of them. And that angle just might have been the most convincing one ever done on a television wrestling program anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. I don't know anybody that could have done something more significant, something more wild, something more crazy. I mean, uh, it was just an amazing piece of video and an amazing time frame in 1977 when we did that angle. Today's training, uh, Dave, we're going to go with another deep dive. And uh, what's currently happening in Southeastern, we're going to build up to the NWA world title match on Sunday, October 10th, 1976, between Terry Funk and I. And we're going to wear Booker's hats again today. And we're going to dig into the first ever Southeastern appearance of Dory Funk Jr. in Knoxville. He's became specifically there to stop me and to stop my challenge for his brother's world title. And uh, we're going to look today also at the Knoxville card of Friday, September 10th, 1976 in Bill Meyer Baseball Stadium. Obviously, the fair is still in town and the park is still being used out there. We're going to talk about the TV of Saturday, September 4th. And that's going to be the television that's promoting this matches on the 10th of September. And uh, we're going to hear the results of those matches. We'll get that uh, in this program today. We'll get the attendance figure for that night of September 10th, 1976. And we're going to end today's ride with a very interesting learning tree question. Question is, uh, did I ever have a wrestler that did not want to or refuse to lose a match? <laughs> I'm looking forward to answering that one. <laughs> that should be fun. Wow. <laughs> so. All right. It sounds like we're going to be dealing with a couple of former NWA world champions, the Funk brothers, to start this one out today. And knowing these two, I'm going to send you up extra tight for this ride, Ron. Well, I am too, Dave. I mean, you know, these boys are hosses. And uh, it's it's really funny. I, I'm, I'm going to enjoy this episode because I have such a great relationship with these two brothers. Obviously, they're the only two brothers in the history of the sport to both be NWA world champions. And in today's training, we're going to again be wearing that Booker's hat, as I said just a second ago. And the closer we get to September 10th, 1976, and that world title match with Terry Funk, the more intricate the angles and the timing have to be to get this where I want it to be as a Booker. Uh, Everything has to match up to get the maximum impact that I want for this championship match with Terry. It means a lot to me. It means a lot to my company. Uh, it means a lot to the history and the future of Southeastern wrestling. And in this week's Studscast, we're going to welcome for the first time ever in Southeastern, as I said a second ago, the former NWA world champion, Dory Funk Jr. So several Studcasts ago, I laid out an intricate booking schedule that told about a lot of these future angles and matches that were going to come to get ready for the world championship match. In today's training, I want to take a deeper dive into that schedule, and I I want to get to the story behind the match. The better you build up a match, or as I call them, uh, the the story behind the match, the bigger the crowd's going to be, and the more the fans are going to be involved when that match finally gets here. So it's so important for a booker to not drop the ball and to put on that hat and to really, really make sure he gives fans everything he can to get to where this big match is. 
So lots of bookers now have world champion dates, and a lot of them have them way ahead of time. And they don't do anything special when the champ arrives. It, it's, you know, it's odd in some territories, and I worked several territories. Uh, some guys, uh, boogers, didn't like to emphasize the world championship. So since Southeastern, though, we're only, you know, we, we've, we've only had a few world title matches since, uh, since I started the company. We're only going to have about two a year, traditionally, or less in some years. And uh, to me as a booker, these championship matches ought to have special significance. Now, for larger territories, they have the champion five or six times a year. Some of them didn't bill for it. You know, they, they didn't think it was necessary. And uh, some wouldn't even promote it weeks in advance. They didn't like to even do any angles to work toward it at all because they had the feeling that having a world champion might cause your business to drop a little bit before the match gets there. And then definitely after the match gets there, if you put too much emphasis on it, they felt like, wow, how do you follow it? Right. Well, I'm thinking about that as a booker, and I'm not told anybody what's going to happen on October the 10th, and I'm not going to tell anybody until we actually get to that show. But I'm not going to be the type of booker that's going to say, I'm scared of what's going to happen afterward. I'm going to do something that's going to make business bigger afterward. So, you know, my territory is kind of unique because it's a small one, you know, and, and we weren't going to get the world champion as much as a larger territory. I knew that. Uh, I didn't want him that much. The NWA champion was just one man, and he could only wrestle in one city a night. You know, he can't go everywhere. There's no way you're going to change that. So because he couldn't be everywhere, you had to share him. And that was pretty difficult to be in, in the seat that Muchnik was in at that time and trying to figure out how do I share this guy and make everybody happy. Uh, that's a job in itself. So Southeastern hadn't had a world championship match in almost a year since November of 1975 when Ron Wright met Jack Briscoe for the title. About one month after that match in November of 75, Jack Briscoe is going to lose the title to Terry Funk. So we're going to get not just Jack Briscoe in 1976, we're going to get a new NWA champion, Terry Funk. And in September of 1976, I didn't have any idea when I'm going to get my next championship match. You know, usually I would have Sam call me and just say, Ron, I want to give you the champ on such and such a date. Uh, I didn't request him, like I said, more than maybe twice a year. So at the point that we're getting ready to have our championship match a month away from it, I have no idea when we're going to have the next champion back in. Pretty hard for a booker, uh, but at the same time, it's what booking was all about. Uh, you couldn't have a world champion every night, and if you did, you wouldn't want it. So this world title match, it had to mean something. Uh, it had to be built into something special by me, the booker. And uh, that meant pulling that damn hat down tight on my head and turning the booker light on inside and giving fans something special. So we'd been building for this world title match every week since the announcement of the upcoming new champion's first ever appearance in Southeastern. Terry Funk had been sending these interviews every week now for a few weeks. First interview he sent. He talked openly about trying to convince NWA officials that I just wasn't qualified to meet him for the title. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> that's a pretty good, it would have been a pretty good argument, but, uh, right. but they, didn't, they didn't agree with him because they knew that I held a win over Dory Funk Jr. and Terry. So, right. you know, how's he going to say, hey, he ain't qualified. Oh, well, he beat you, Terry, <laughs> two years ago, you know, yeah. so, 
So obviously, when that didn't work, he went a totally different direction. He argued, I think probably on the next interview he sent, about that at least two months prior to the title match, if I were to lose any matches, that I should lose my shot at the title. Now, he got the NWA official's degree with that one, said, okay, if he loses any matches between the time he gets the title shot with you and the title match is supposed to come to pass, then he won't get the shot. So uh, here I am over a month away, and I've not lost yet. So, you know, that hadn't worked for him. And we're just, like I said, 30 days away from the title match. In fact, uh, this September 10th night we're talking about is exactly 30 days away from the title shot in October 10th. Then he goes and he says, I'll pay cash money and I'll fly into Knoxville and I'll give any wrestler that can pin Ron Fuller or hurt him badly enough to eliminate him from the title shot some money. $5,000 what it started out to be. Mm-hmm. And then, then he even took that even further than anything I'd ever heard before. He offered on TV promos the bounty opportunity to any fan. <laughs> wow. I mean, you know, it's one thing to offer it to the wrestlers, but it's right. another to the fan. And he said right openly, he said, uh, you know, he said, I don't care if you're a wrestler or not. And, and I don't care how you do it. I don't even care if you run over him with your car. You know, I'm going to fly into Knoxville and I'm going to pay you for it. (laughs) Wow. That's taking it to another level. You know, I mean, you got some fans out there that may be hungry for money and go, wow, I got a pretty big car, you know, and I might see him on the street and I need some money. (laughs) This, This probably had you legitimately looking over your shoulder or just being extra careful. Did Terry talk with you about this angle or he just threw it out there? Oh, he didn't talk to me about it. You know, <laughs> and I did I don't know what's coming on these interviews until right. I throw them up on the, uh, the back in the studio yeah. in the back before that we go on the air and take a look and see what he said. And boy, when he goes, I'm going to pay any fan. I was like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> well, geez, ain't he going a little far here? You know? So thank goodness. Nobody took him up on that, but, For uh, real? But the heels in the territory lined up. (laughs) I I bet they did. I was going to say, with the fans, this had to be putting you over big time because your back was really against the wall, and it was win everything or the title shot is gone. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's pretty crazy. But, uh, you know, that as a booker is, is, you know, it's a scenario that most places don't go that far. They Mm. don't think like that. But I I wanted to really put the emphasis on this match and how important it was. So, uh, you know, like I said, heels began to line up to get this bounty. And I had the first one uh, in two episodes ago in uh, Studcast 162 against Tor Tanaka, which is actually one week earlier than we're talking about now, September 3rd, 76. And we're going to briefly go back and talk about that match later in the show and how that match ended. But let's talk about the following Friday, September 10th, 1976. Dory Funk Jr. arrives in Southeastern Territory. He's got one thing in mind. He's here to do his brother's dirty work, and he's going to pin me or he's going to hurt me, one or the other. And Terry even offered his own brother the 5000 to get it done. You know, I, my my brother always asked me for five thousand. He'll have a problem, you know. <laughs> but but uh, Terry Terry's relationship with Junior. You know, I didn't think it was that 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 way in particular, but I assume it was. So it was only 30 days until Terry and I are going to meet for the world title. 
I had not wrestled Dory Jr. for almost two years. And that match was after Jr. had lost the title to Harley Race. And in that match, I got my first win over Dory Funk Jr. So, you know, luckily I had that win because it served its purpose with the NWA guys when they got to looking at it and go, well, he's beat you and your brother. So from a fan's perspective, to let everyone know what it was, you know, still like going, having to survive in the next four weeks after this September match, September 10th match with Dory Funk Jr. I was going to have to wrestle in the next four weeks before I get to the title match two more times, both of them in Texas death matches against Dory Funk Jr. (laughs) One of those is going to be in his hometown of Amarillo, where no opponent had ever won a Texas death match against any of the Funks, including their father, Dory Sr. Wow. So, you know, that's like an impossible thing, you know. I said, well, let's do it. Let's do it. So the closer the NWA world title match got, the more money Terry offered to end his challenge. You know, uh, the 5,000 went to 10,000. We're going to have challenge matches here, the two challenge matches back-to-back with 10,000 bounties, both in the Coliseum because they're big. There's a lot at stake here. And uh, and I'm going to have to wrestle Don Carson in the 10,000 bounty match. And also... That's a loser leave Southeast. I mean, if I lose that, I don't just lose the title shot. Now, I'm going to stop wrestling in Southeast, you know, unless I want to wear a mask or do something crazy. And then there's another 10,000 bounty match coming up after that with that dangerous Arab man, the great Mephisto. <laughs> right. And uh, so in order to get to the title match, I've really got to prove that, that I'm ready. And then you add to that. Now I'm wrestling five or six nights a week. Besides these Friday nights, and if I lose any match there, it's gone. The title shot's done, and somebody else is going to get the title shot. So by the time I get to Sunday, October 10th, 1976, I've definitely earned my chance to become the next NWA world champion. That sounds like having to run the gauntlet against some of the best wrestlers in the world at the time, no doubt about it. That was another great Today's Training Run. Now, where are we headed? Well, we're going to be returning to the Southeastern Wrestling in Knoxville on that Friday night, uh, September 10th, 1976. And like I said, we're again in the Bill Meyer Baseball Stadium for the second week in a row due to the fair. It's still over there in Chilhowee Park. Uh, Terry Funk's still trying his best to get me beat or hurt before the NWA world title shot just 30 days away from this night of September 10th. And he's taking his vendetta against me to another level. I've survived the first bounty match from the week before, September 3rd, against Tor Tanaka. This time, he sent his brother and his and the former world champion, Dory Funk Jr., to Knoxville to take care of his dirty business, as I said. And as I said earlier, I hadn't wrestled Dory in two years, but I held a victory over him. And it gave me a lot of uh, confidence that that I'm I'm a better wrestler than I was two years earlier than that. And I think I'm going to get him again. So let's take a look at this great card of Friday night, September 10th, 1976. The opening match was Don Wright, who hadn't been on a Knoxville card in a long time, versus the newcomer David Schultz in just his second Knoxville match. Uh, second match on that card was Jimmy Golden and Mike Stallings versus Tor Tanaka and Don Carson, and they were managed by Homer Odell. Pretty, That's an odd combination there, Tanaka and Carson, and then Homer managing in the corner. There were two major titles on the line on this card. Southeastern champion, the Gladiator, defending his title against Louis Tillette. 
And the next championship match was the Mid-American champion, the great Mephisto, against the star that he had burned seven weeks earlier, Bob Armstrong. The main event was a $5,000 bounty match with the former NWA world champion, Dory Funk Jr., meeting yours truly, the Tennessee stud. I want to break down and describe these five great matches after we talk about the tremendous TV show of Saturday, September 4th, 1976. That's just six days before the card I just described. We're going to open that TV with a still shot that uh, we've been doing on a lot of shows lately. It came from the last Knoxville match on September 3rd, 1976 in the Bill Myers Stadium. And it was from the event that night. And that was a $5,000 Terry Funk bounty match to, to be paid to tour Tanaka if he could get the job done. Tanaka was managed, obviously, by Homer Odell. If I won the match, there was a special stipulation. I got five minutes alone with Homer Odell. So in this match, Homer for the third week in a row, uh, just to remind fans, we've talked about this match, but I want to remind them what happened in this match on September 3rd. Homer for the third week in a row cost Tanaka another match. And then he begged Tanaka afterward not to leave him alone with me for the five minutes that I had earned by getting the victory over Tanaka. And the TV shot of the day that day was still framed behind Les, as they always were, after Les ran down the, the lineup for the day. Then the camera backs off, and then uh, everybody gets to see what's going on on that big screen behind us. And I'm out there to join Les at the set. When it does open up, it, it shows Homer down on his knees at Tanaka, uh, by Tanaka's bare feet, and he's begging him, you know, please, don't, you know. So and when that happened and the fans in the studio saw what was going on, everybody cracked up. So, you know, and, and I did, too. And so did Les. We couldn't help but crack up, too. And Homer's down there. He's begging like crazy. <laughs> so the studio crowd popped. And, uh, and I'm pretty sure fans at home did as well. They were like, wow, look at that shot. You know, Homer down there begging to knock off for something. So Les had a big laugh along with me. And then he asked me to explain to those that weren't at that match what this was all about. So I told him that this was immediately following the end of the match where Homer had again messed up and he cost a big man to lose. And Homer was begging not only for forgiveness from Tanaka for causing him to lose, but he also for Tanaka to stay there with him and maybe help him in the next five minutes because he's going to be in there with me. So I explained that there was something about to happen after they rolled this tape that was even better than this shot. So Les obviously asked the director to roll the tape, and it showed Tanaka nod his head in agreement, as if, yeah, I'll do that for you. And uh, and, and, and then, and then uh, he, Homer jumped up, and, and he hugged Tanaka, and he backed away to the corner of the ring. He was shaking his head in relief, like, oh, my God, thank goodness. He's, he's forgive me for costing him another loss, and he's going to do the deal for me, help me out, the whole deal. And then Tanaka looked straight at him, and the camera, the cameraman, I don't know, he got a tremendous shot of Tanaka's face and the whole deal. And Tanaka made this hand gesture very plainly to Homer. He, he put his hand to his lips, and then he bent forward, and he stuck out his big rear end, and then he slapped his hand on his big butt. Basically, kiss my ass. <laughs> and you could hear the crowd in the baseball stadium pop. <laughs> I mean, it was like, wow, the whole crowd, whoa, it was a big roar. And about that same time, you know, uh, Les and I popped. <laughs> it, was, it was a funny shot. So then the video follows Tanaka as he left the ring. 
And he doesn't just go straight off of the baseball diamond uh, to the dressing room. He gets out and out away from the ring a little bit, and he points back to Homer, and he gets his attention, and he does the whole deal again. <laughs> <laughs> so you can hear the fans cheering Tanaka in the stands as he disappeared out of the video. So I took advantage of Homer's disappointment and his humiliation. <laughs> Why not, man? He's standing there. Now he's totally humiliated. He's scared to death, and I pounced on him like a cat on a rat, man. I mean, uh, and it wasn't very long. Melissa and I watched a very short match. I beat Homer with a fuller leg lock in about two minutes. It wasn't a very long match. Homer didn't have a prayer. So so it was a great way to open the show. The studio was still buzzing. and I went straight into the ring. I had my gear on. I wrestled live on the first match, and I got a quick win with the toe hold, the fuller leg lock, on the 300-pound Don Lambert. The first interview kept that momentum of this show going. Tore Tanaka, Don Carson, and the very humble at this point, Homer Odell, joined Les for the first interview after the commercial break was done. Tanaka and Carson sat next to Les, and Homer had to stand up very quietly in the background. So Les, after the response from the studio crowd at the opening of the show, where Homer was down begging Tanaka, uh, he couldn't help but take a shot at Homer right off the top. So he he looks up at Homer as soon as the interview starts, and he and he asks him how are things going between you and Tanaka. <laughs> <laughs> so Homer's face went blood red, man. His big old fat cheeks puffed out, man. He exploded on Les. He started screaming something about it wasn't any of Les's business or whatever. And all of a sudden, Don Carson steps in immediately, and he. He reprimands Homer right there live. They say, hey, hey, hey. You know, and he says, don't you remember? You you and I agreed that I'm going to do the talking out here. So Homer went silent. But boy, his face told the story the rest of that two minutes. <laughs> they stayed so blood red. It was crazy. So Homer's mad and Carson's in charge. So Carson took over, obviously, like he always does. And he began to rant about Mike Stallings. How Mike Stallings had come to the ring the night before in his match and tried to, it was Jimmy Golden against uh, Carson. And uh, Mike Stallings had come down to the ring and he tried to keep his boyfriend, Jimmy Golden, from losing. And how he, the great Don Carson, was working over Jimmy Golden so badly and had spread his peanut butter. And then he stuck his new black, recovered black glove up there on the TV all over. He spread his peanut butter all over Golden's face. And then that punk Stalin shows up. So Les tried to slow him down a little bit. And he, by saying, you know, Golden and Stalin, they're going to be haunted after the next match. And uh, they're going to watch that video you're talking about, Don. And uh, Don just kept talking like Don. He never paid attention to Les. You know, Carson just kept talking over Les. And, and he was thanking his new great friend, the mighty Tor Tanaka, for getting his peanut butter back from that thief, Ron Fuller. And Carson plowed ahead, boy, made boast about the pain that was coming to Golden and Stallings the next Friday night when the two superstars, he and Tanaka, was going to lay waste to those young punks. I mean, Carson was doing his thing. Homer didn't speak the rest of the interview. And it was becoming apparent, I think, to fans at this point that the dynamics were changing in the Homer Odell and the Tor Tanaka relationship. As a booker, I wanted them now to not see it, but to see it. And uh, and I believe, you know, I was teasing them with it. So after the interview ended, this threesome went straight to the ring. Tanaka and Carson went in there. Uh, Homer stood quietly in the corner. 
And they got an absolutely devastating win over a couple of young baby faces that just, wow, they got murdered. It was a tremendous win in a very short period of time. The show's rocking at this point, man. Now, Golan and Stallings have joined last at the set now. They're going to watch the actual video from the night before where Jimmy was taking on Don Carson. And that video clearly showed that Carson was lying as usual. And the Carson wasn't in control of the match, but Golan was in control of the match. It also showed that Tanaka was the first guy to show up at the ring and not Mike Stallings. And he was there to help Don Carson, who was really in trouble. Uh, Jimmy's about to beat him. So Jimmy and Stallings, they stayed at the set when Les threw it commercial. But then they took the next interview. They got the studio fans on their feet, man, talking about how these so-called young punks, talking about themselves and the way Carson referred to them, were going to take care of a couple of old, rotten, and ugly old-timers the following Friday night. Fans really love that stuff, man. There's these two young go-getting baby faces. And, and uh, you know, anything anybody said about Carson, everybody loved anyway. So it was up to, it was at, at this point a great television show so far. Absolutely. It sounds like it. I know we got more of that coming. Hey, this sounds like a great place to take a break. We'll do that right now. This Studcast will continue in a moment right here. Great things are happening right now with Ron Super Studcast. Super number 32 with Jerry the King Lawler is one of the most popular ever done. The entire three hours plus is devoted to Memphis wrestling and its greatest star, Jerry Lawler. If you don't know this story or this star, you're missing one of wrestling's fantastic history lessons at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. If you do know both, you probably don't know as much as you thought and you'll realize it when you finish listening. The stud is working now on the next Super Studcast. Number 33 to be released on Tuesday, September 15th. It's a very special one for the stud because of who it is. You may have heard his family's recent one hour tribute to the great bullet Bob Armstrong. That was just the beginning. He's previously recorded at least an hour of unheard stories that are the last recorded by one of the most famous wrestlers in history. You'll hear that plus tributes this time from wrestlers all over the world and find out all of the love and respect this man left behind at TNStud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Three hours cannot do justice to the wrestler and man we all love, Bob Armstrong. Get ready to load the bullet. All right, Rod, we are back. And if I'm correct, you are probably going to do the personality profile for this Southeastern TV show of Saturday, September 4th, 1976. Now you're on it, Dave. Hot dog, man. That's exactly where we are. We're through with two matches. Uh, we've done the two interviews. We're halfway through with the show, and we're into the personality profile. And at this time in 1976, we're only about, like I've said earlier, about four weeks away from this huge world championship match for Southeastern. It's a big moment for Southeastern. And as I talked about in today's training earlier in the show, there was a growing focus on the arrival of Terry Funk to defend the world title. I'm not sure how many times, if ever, Dory Funk Jr. had wrestled in Knoxville before I arrived there in 1974. He was a world champion at that point. And uh, John Kazana, he was not world champion. Uh, Harley Race was world champion at that point. But he had been champion for quite a while. So uh, John Kazana may not have had the opportunity to get him for any title matches or maybe probably never even booked him at all in Knoxville. Because uh, the booking office in Nashville wasn't getting a whole lot of dates on the NWA champion. 
they weren't high priority in the NWA structure of territories around the country and the world. And if the Nashville office got a shot at the world champion and had a date, they were more likely going to use him in cities they owned rather than send him to Knoxville, where they're only going to get a booking fee for having a champion in the territory. So it made sense that probably this was the first time people in the East Tennessee area had ever seen Dory Funk Jr. wrestle. And that being the case, Knoxville and East Tennessee fans had very little knowledge of great wrestlers outside the state period. And that was a shame. And then because of that fact, it was a goal of mine to bring the best wrestlers on earth to Southeastern. I wanted them to see the absolute best. When you're talking about the best, it's hard to find two better than the Funk Brothers. In fact, that's why they're the only two brothers ever and that record still stands to both of them be NWA world champions. So I was absolutely thrilled and honored to bring these two guys to Southeastern. I knew for a fact that fans were going to be blown away after seeing these guys. And the funks certainly didn't disappoint me. i tell you that, man. The junior came to get it done, and so did Terry. Fans had been getting a steady taste of Terry Funk and his incomparable review interview style for several weeks by this point. And on this show, they get a feel for the older brother, Dory Funk Jr. He has an almost totally opposite interview than Terry. <laughs> it's, and I, I can't emphasize that enough. I mean, Terry's wild and spontaneous and his interviews are crazy. And Jr. is quiet and deliberate and mm. totally believable. I mean, you believe what he says. So I was on this personality profile list by myself. It was being done live in front of the studio fans sitting right out there through the separation between the two studios. They could see us. We could see them. We talked about the crazy things that Terry was doing to try and avoid my meeting him for the championship on October 10th, 76. We talked about his first saying, I wasn't qualified for the title shot, even though I held a win over him in St. Louis almost two years earlier. And we talked about how he got the NWA officials to agree with him that a single loss by me in the three months leading up the match would cost me the title shot. How he was now offering $5,000 bonus, and to get that loss or worse, an injury would put me out of action before the title match. It was a crazy bounty for a ridiculous reason, and to hurt somebody, it just took it to another level. Then Les got pretty angry about the fact that Terry was also trying to get the fans involved. <laughs> He didn't like that either. And, uh, and you know, he was upset with the fact that they, Terry was offering them the bounty, even if they had to go so far as to run over me with their cars. Right. He was like, wow, Ron, I, you know, I've seen it all, I thought, man, but this is really, really out there. So we discussed how the wrestling world had become focused on Southeastern wrestling since Terry had begun to, to try to, to end my title shot and how the spotlight was now on October 76. And on Knoxville, Tennessee, on Southeastern Wrestling, when Terry and I were supposed to meet, how Southeastern Wrestling had exploded in the last six months in popularity. And with all this Terry Funk annex that were going on, uh, it was becoming, for the first time ever, a very well-known part of the country for wrestling. I mean, Terry was really making Southeastern something special. Then Les set up the Funk interview for the show. When this time, the interview was from a wrestler fan said, probably he had heard of, I'm sure they had heard of him, but uh, I don't think they had ever seen him. And I said that earlier was Dory Funk Jr. So Jr.'s interviews were as serious as a heart attack and just about as scary. You know, 
he looked straight in the camera with those eyes that looked like daggers. And he promised right there that he was going to end all this for Terry. <laughs> Brother, I'm going to end all this for you. It'll be over on Saturday, the 11th of uh, September. But this yeah. thing will be done. And uh, he promised he's going to beat me for sure. And he's going to stop this ridiculous challenge from a weak wrestler, he called me, living in a poor and dirty part of America, <laughs> filled with nothing but hillbilly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then he says, he throws on top of that, that there was never a fuller that could beat a funk <laughs> any more than there was ever a Tennessean that could beat a Texan. Well, he, he stirred it up right there. <laughs> I'll tell you, in less than one minute, with only three sentences, Dory Jr. had insulted and inflamed that entire part of the country and added real heat to his family and the world championship match four weeks away. Wow. That studio crowd listened to that first three sentences, and they couldn't wait until the interview to respond. They right. began to boo. As soon as he was still talking and they started booing so loud, you couldn't hear much of the rest of what he had to say. Right. So, so Dory Jr. got over in, in the first minute of a two-minute interview. It was that's, unbelievable. That's pretty amazing for Dory Funk Jr. As you said, most were not familiar with him except maybe by name. They'd never seen him before. But at the same time, you're not only bringing in and introducing Names that the folks in that part of Tennessee had never heard of. Your own reputation is really built. I mean, did they call you big country or anything back then? I mean, you're six feet nine, <laughs> 275 pounds. So, I mean, they really thought, they must have thought here in, in the Knoxville area, nobody's going to beat this big boy. Well, you know, I, I kind of came up with a name for him. And then a lot of people, you know, they all, they all call me stud. There was a lot of people believed that, you know, I could do it. And, uh, yeah. you know, I had done it before and they, they believed I could. So then I had my chance to answer his interview with a short one of my own. And, uh, and, uh, and I started saying that when it, uh, you know, basically when all this began, I was only going to have to beat one Texan <laughs> to be, and, and one champion, you know, and, uh, yeah. but now I was going to have the rare opportunity to, to kick two heck Texans behind and come out on October 10th, 76, the new NWA World Heavyweight Champion, too. And, uh, and I was going to prove forever that Tennesseans were just better and stronger than Texans. Uh, the roar from that little small studio crowd was deafening. I could only imagine what it sounded like in homes across the Southeast. Wow. The next Friday's match with Dory Funk Jr., was made right there during that personality profile. And the upcoming championship match between Terry Funk and myself was just setting up to become one of the greatest matches in Tennessee history. The rest of the television was just as good. Immediately following the profile, Louis Tillette got a big win in the next live match. Then the studio exploded. Bob Armstrong, who had stayed over from the night before to make this TV as a favor for me, before catching the plane back to Florida, appeared in wrestling trunks with his partner from the night before, the Southeastern champion, the Gladiator. And they went to the set with Les. They watched and talked over a wild tag team match from the night before against the great Mephisto and Louis Tillette. The video showed them fighting all over the infield of that baseball stadium. It was, an, oh, it was a brawl. They finished by pointing out that they were in separate matches against these same two opponents the next Friday night. 
Bob was going to be against the man who had burned him seven weeks earlier, the great Mephisto, wrestling for Mephisto's Mid-American Championship. The gladiator was going to defend his Southeastern Championship against Louis Tillet, who had just won the match before on television. When they finished and left the set, both Tillet and Mephisto came up out for the next interview. Mephisto hinted that Armstrong might get very hot again, as all infidels should, he said, and then be gone for even longer the next time. You know, and Tillet guaranteed that he's going to be the new Southeastern champion on the next Saturday show. Studio crowd erupted again when Bob Armstrong appeared in the studio for the last match of this show, and he set that crowd on fire, especially toward the end of the match when Mephisto comes out from behind the wall where the dressing room was and acts as if he's going to jump in the ring with Bob. So Bob, being Bob, he had his opponent down and pretty well done, he just jumped out on the floor and chased Mephisto out of the studio and then ran back in the ring, grabbed his opponent, shot him in the road, put a sleeper hold on him, and finished him off. <laughs> so, I mean, like Bob said, I'll beat you, Mephisto, and this guy at the same time. So Bob and the Gladiator, they closed out this show with a tremendous television interviews, man. Great interviews at the end, and uh, it, it was phenomenal. When you get that kind of TV show and that kind of reaction from the fans and you're hitting on all cylinders, like that. I'm pretty sure you were expecting a big crowd. So tell us what you drew before you give us the results. What happened? Well, it was by far the biggest crowd we'd ever drawn that baseball stadium. Of course, I'd been there two times a year before. This was our fourth time there, two times uh, in the 1976. It was just over 4,000 fans, but it probably would have topped about 4,500 if it hadn't been for uh, this Huge forecast, big storm supposed to come, uh, right? And uh, and rain was going to come, and it's outside event, uh, so it did not do as much as I had hoped for, but it still did uh, a little over 4,000 fans, which is big. For in fact, that was about twice what the baseball team was <laughs> drawing there. The wrestlers came in there and did 4,000, and the baseball team in the summertime was lucky to get two, so so we were doing good. Wow, that's interesting. All right, so what happened that night? Was was there rain? Did did it happen? Well, even though you know we were outside the baseball stadium, this one had a covered grandstand, and obviously that's going to offer protection from the rain. Otherwise, I would prefer to been in Chihuahua Park in the amphitheater. But thank goodness we weren't in the amphitheater. It was cold, and to call it raining that night would just be an understatement. <laughs> so. It was a wild night, uh, some of which might have been because it was cold and it was threatening rain all night. Best part was the fans enjoyed themselves in spite of the weather. The opening match was won by David Schultz over Don Wright. Second match was Mike Stallings and Jimmy Golden against Tor Tanaka and Don Carson, who were managed by Homer O'Dell. And that was a great match, I'll tell you, man. The rain had not yet begun to fall. It was still dry. Tanaka got the pin. On Stallings, but only after another mishap between Homer and Tanaka that almost caused Tanaka to lose again. So Tanaka seemed ready by the time this one was over to take Homer apart. But oddly enough, Don Carson calmed Tanaka down and he took him back to the dressing room by himself, just Carson and Tanaka. And Homer stayed in the ring. His head was hung down and he finally left the ring and he went to the dressing room alone. The crowd booed Homer after he left by himself. A lot louder than they'd booed Tanaka and Carson. Uh, Homer still had a great heat, man. He had really a lot of heat. 
Southeastern Championship match between the Gladiator and Louis Tillette was next, and the Gladiator won convincingly over Tillette. The fourth match was the highly anticipated one, the great Mephisto defending his Mid-American Championship against the old fan favorite Bob Armstrong. And uh, that's the guy he had burned seven weeks earlier. Storm clouds were literally gathering during this match as Bob made one of his patented comebacks on the end of this match. Everyone in that stadium was on their feet. And out of nowhere, suddenly, Homer Odell, for some unknown reason, appears down at ringside and jumps up on the apron of the ring. Well, Bob's got Mephisto really going, but Bob and the referee both go over there toward Homer. He draws their attention, and uh, Mephisto turns his back again. And boy, you can, everybody by this point, they've seen this, they know what's coming. So Homer jumps down from the apron, and Bob turned to continue his comeback and finish the Arab off. And instead, the Arab hit him with a big fireball, man. And again, Bob was engulfed in fire. His whole head disappeared in the flames, just like it had the first time. And the referee rang the bell. He disqualified Mephisto. Bob rolled violently around the ring, and a fan got up off the front row, thank goodness, and threw his jacket into the ring. The referee put it around Bob's head, and several baby faces ran down to the ring, and they helped Bob back to the dressing room. Now, this time, the crowd... You know, they had seen this on two different occasions. They'd seen it done to Ron Wright. They had seen it done to Bob before. And this time, the crowd was really more upset and angry than they were either of those two times. So when Mephisto left the ring, he had a hard time getting to the dressing room because the fans blocked his entrance into the dressing room. It was right under the grandstand. So he was forced to go down the third base line of the infield to an exit gate that was down there just about where third base sat. And the police saw what was going on. They really did their job. They jumped right in there. They escorted him through that gate and out into the parking lot and around to the front side of the grandstand where nobody could get to. And they took him in another entrance into the Hills dressing room. Mm. So Mephisto now by this point has thrown three fireballs since his arrival in Southeastern. One on Ron Wright and two of them on Bob Armstrong. And uh, sorry for the pun, and no pun intended here, but Mephisto was now the hottest heel in Southeastern wrestling. (laughs) There was no doubt about that. For real. (laughs) People, yeah, for real. People people hated him. They really hated him. So Bob isn't going to return to Southeastern until the first week in December of 1976. And when he returns in December of 1976, He's going to be in Southeastern for a very long run, just about forever. So it's the time for the main event now between Dory Funk Jr. and the former NWA world champion and myself. And the storm clouds, like I said, had been growing all night. And when the bell rang for the main event, the sky opened up. It wasn't a light rain. It just kept increasing slowly over time. It was a downpour that made the ringsiders on the field sitting out there around the ring. They had no cover over them. It made them run, literally, for shelter in the grandstand. You know, uh, it was raining, like, unbelievably strong. And it was cold, too. So when I got to the edge of the grandstand, leaving the dressing room, before I got out into, beyond the covering, over the grandstand and out into the rain, I could hardly see the ring for the deluge from above. I mean... 
there was no one in the ringside seats. Every single person that had been in ringside was gone. The chairs were all empty. <laughs> I, I watched Dory Funk Jr. step out into the rain on the far side of the stadium. And boy, did he get a gigantic roar of booze. I mean, they hadn't forgot what he said, man. <laughs> they were waiting on him. Uh, you know, what was happening, the fans were answering his interview from the Saturday before. All those Tennesseans were talking to that Texan. I tell you that. No doubt. How I, I wonder, too, before you stepped out into the rain, was there was there a little bit of, oh, man, I can't believe I'm doing this? And were you dreading the cold and the wet? And were you dreading the match before you stepped out in, at, as you said, a deluge of rain? Oh, yeah. And, and it was cold. It was a little bit cold that night. And that's Tennessee weather for you. It was early September, but the first cold front usually came through sometime in September in that part of the country. And this one was really a cold rain. And, and wrestling with Junior was tough. And, uh, you know, I'm going to explain a little bit about that. I, I actually got goosebumps when I stepped out into the rain. And not, not because of the cold rain. But because of the reception I got from the crowd, I mean, they went crazy when when Junior was seen. And as soon as I stepped out, they just roared for me. I was like, wow, listen to these people, man. It was unreal. That made me want to go to the ring. That made it all a heck of a lot better. Just hearing that crowd reaction. The fans were really getting involved in this angle leading up to the world title match at this point. They had never experienced the invasion of two of the best wrestlers on earth. They had never seen the likes of the Funks. You know, in this match, they're going to get their first taste of uh, me wrestling a Funk. They had never been around two wrestlers from another state that were just espouted all this, this venom about their superiority of their state as compared to the Tennessee, to their home state. The rivalry had suddenly become much more than just the Funks against the Fuller. It was now more personal. It was Tennessee versus Texas is what it was now. So I'd already, in just a few minutes, it had already rained so hard that I had red mud on my rustling boots by the time I got to the ring. You know, they had the red red clay, and once that rain hit it really good and my, my boots dug down into it, and so did he. When he got on the on the mat, it was the same thing. The mat was totally wet when I stood up on the apron. The mud was on both of our boots. And uh, before this match is going to be over, that mud is going to be all over our bodies. Uh, you know, you can't help but track it into the ring. And when you track it into the ring and then you're going to be up and down and all around in that ring, it's going to get to be a nasty thing. There's something about that driving rain and the importance of my winning and losing made this match, uh, and the crowd go crazy. I mean, they just loved this match. They saw things in this match that I don't think they'd ever seen in Knoxville. Dory Jr.'s style of wrestling was completely different than Terry's, and he was going out there to wrestle a very scientific match with great skill and beauty, actually. That sucker could wrestle. And instead of trying to knock you out with punches, as Terry did, He was going to try to wrestle me into the mat, and then he was going to rattle my brain with forearms to the side of my head. That's all he did. He didn't throw punches, but by God, he had the worst forearm I had ever had anybody hit me with. I'd rather been hit with a right hand than hit with one of Junior's forearms. (laughs) So I'm going to get a diet of that in this match. Uh, 
fans were probably expecting, obviously, a short match with this kind of weather. But they were in for a real surprise, by golly. This match went beyond 45 minutes. The grandstand was electric during this match. I mean, they were constantly roaring. And even though it was raining so hard, I couldn't even hardly see the grandstand. I I didn't know how in the world they could see us. I I was wondering, how can they see what we're doing? Because it never stopped. The rain just poured, just flooded the ring. It was a horrible, horrible, horrible night. The match ended in something Junior and I had never had before, a brawl. I mean, I'd had a lot of matches with Junior, but I had never had a brawl with Junior. We were both bleeding at the end of this match. The referee had been knocked down by both of us a couple of times, and then he finally had had enough, and he rang the bell, and he disqualified both of us. Wow. So, so there was no official winner, but there was also, to my benefit, no loser. Aha. Uh-huh. Right? Right. So I was still in the hunt for the World Heavyweight Championship, and I had still not lost to Junior. So yeah. following Friday night, Dory Funk Jr. is going to come back to Knoxville again. And this time, he's not coming to wrestle in a storm, but to be in a Tennessee fan storm. I mean, he's going to be uh, there representing Texas against a bunch of Tennesseans. And this time, it's not going to be in the rain. It's not going to be outside. It's going to be in the Coliseum. So the main event, definitely this time, is going to have to have a winner. That's what's got to happen in this one. And uh, probably from either of the two best finishing holes in the world, somebody between us is going to win. Terry and Junior always had that famous spinning toe hold that their daddy taught them. And by golly, I had the fuller leg lock that my daddy had taught me. It was going to be a Texas death match in the Coliseum the following Friday night with no rules, no disqualification. (laughs) <laughs> Dory Funk Jr. versus the Tennessee boy, hoping to be the next NWA world champion. Man, what a night you're talking about here. It seems like the way you've got it paced, everything is growing bigger and more exciting each week as we get closer to that championship match. That is absolutely awesome. All right, Ron, I think we could take a break right here. Let's get that cold drink and we'll take a seat under the learning tree. What is our question for today? And who is the person? Who asked the question? Well, today we got a good one. As I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, our learning team question today comes from a guy named Russell Bell. And he asked, have you ever had a wrestler who did not want or refused to lose a match? Now, (laughs) I love this question. It's good. You know, the general truthful answer here would probably be yes. You know, I probably had a whole lot of wrestlers that didn't want to lose, but they knew not to actually tell me that. (laughs) You you better not say it. You may think, oh, I don't want to get beat by this guy, but you better not tell him. You don't say that to the booker. As a booker, you never knew what was in guys' minds as far as winning and losing. It didn't make any difference what the wrestler wanted or thought about winning or losing. The booker made those decisions, and the wrestler always lived with it, whether he liked it or not. It was a simple deal. Every wrestler, no matter how tough, knew he had no control over winning or losing unless he got in a match that turned out to be a shoot, and that rarely happened. You know, then you could do your deal. You know, you get into a match and where neither one of you liked the finish and you want to go at it, well, then go at it. But bookers never knew what guys were thinking because wrestlers 
knew never to ask the question, am I going to win or lose tonight? You know, they didn't even ask that. So, of course, many wrestlers question, in their own minds, why are you letting this guy beat me? <laughs> you know, then everybody did that. I did that sometimes myself. You know, they, they, you know, you you want to win. You want to you want to get over. You want to make more money. You want to work your way to the top. You want to do all these things, but you're not in control of all that. In some cases, you know, when you had to lose to a guy that's much smaller than me, and uh, you know, he, he don't know how to wrestle, and I would have that legitimate question. I mean, why? Why? You know, but. Some wrestlers were just legitimately tougher than others. Uh, either they had better wrestling ability or better fighting ability, but every one of them knew their toughness uh, didn't matter in the ring. If they were shooting, yeah, it mattered. But no one was shooting in most cases in professional wrestling rings around the world. There weren't shoots going on. Uh, you know, uh, you you knew where you were going up or down. So every professional wrestler was on the same page when they went in the ring. Yeah, you knew the finish, and you live with it, or you left the sport. That's pretty. That's the way it was. If you didn't want to lose, then why don't stay in the amateur ranks if that's where you came from? And you could go on and kick ass, by golly, you know. But when you think about it, how many amateur greats never lost? Right. Danny Hodge, Dan Gable, Jack Briscoe, even the undefeated Russian Olympic world champion that uh, won several Olympics. He lost. He got beat, you know. So when that happened, their matches became even more interesting. Now, when I want fans to think about this. The, the, the mere fact that you could lose left fans on the edge of their seats. And why do you think professional wrestling began to work matches to begin with? If you had someone that had never lost, fans were going to eventually lose interest in watching him wrestle because every one of his matches were always going to have the same outcome. He's going to win. He never loses. So what always happened when an unbeatable wrestler got beat and he lost? The return match with the opponent to beat him would always draw a bigger crowd and more money was made. And, and it still is the basic premise for professional wrestling. Wrestlers always provide a much more enjoyable and excitable match when they aren't wrestling defensively to keep from losing. That's what happens in amateur sports. Because they're working to not lose. But in professional wrestling, it provided the most wide open, full steam ahead, up and down and around and around action that fans of the sport had ever seen. Shoots couldn't compete with that. You know, it, it's going to be slower. It, it's, you, it's just not going to be as exciting. It's just not the same. So, Mr. Bell, your question of whether I had a wrestler that did not want to refuse to lose a match. It can easily be answered. Uh, no, I didn't ever have a wrestler tell me, <laughs> but but I'm sure that they actually had they had their questions about whether they wanted to win or lose or not. So uh, so if you wanted to be a professional wrestler, if you wanted to have a great life with infinitely few injuries, than you would if you were shooting every night. If you go out there and shoot every night, you're going to get hurt every night, and you're going to have pain all the time. So if you want to be a professional wrestler and you want to, to get through these matches and not get hurt so bad that you can't go again the next night, and if you want to get paid real good money compared to no money at all if you're an amateur, they don't get paid. That's the whole deal. You know, and if you want to get paid and wrestle, 
then if you want to be better known and recognized than the amateurs, then you better keep your thoughts to yourself. You got to have some give and take right there and be a part of the program, I'm assuming, is, is really what you're talking about. That's it. I mean, you know, uh, you can't have the benefits of it not being a shoot and then to still profit from it as well. So right. it's a good question. And, and uh, I like the fact that it to test me a little bit. If I'd ever had a wrestler that just flat out refused to lose, mm-hmm. you know, I would have given what what we called in the business an instant notice. I would have told him to take his gear off, pack his bag, and never show his face in another arena where I was promoting. If he did that anywhere else, he'd probably get the same reaction from any other booker. There were probably uh, only one thing that you could say in professional wrestling that would get you fired every time you said it. That was, I'll never lose. Wow. And I bet it would not have been said as politely as you just stated it. There you go. That's another great one, Ron. And congratulations. It's amazing how you do this week to week on the Studcast. On Facebook, there are three sites for Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud. One is full with 5,000 fans. You can still become friends automatically by simply liking the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud page, and also by liking the author. Ron is an author, Ron Fuller Welch page. At Twitter, follow Ron at Ron Fuller Welch. Super Studcast number 32 with the King. Jerry, the King Lawler, is still going absolutely crazy. It's very interesting dive into the early career of the King and an extremely interesting rest of the story, the history of Memphis wrestling. That was really good. Don't miss the next Super Studcast number 33, a three-hour tribute by Ron and other wrestlers from around the world to Bob Armstrong. And Ron, we got to mention this. The novel called Brutus, the fascinating spellbinding thriller now being compared to Jaws, is available on Amazon.com. Search the word Brutus, B-R-U-T-U-S, Brutus. The only place to get an autographed copy is on TNstud.com. Click Stud Store and tell Ron how you want it autographed. The great author and wrestler and good friend Mick Foley recently read your book, Ron, and did a review, and I bet that would be worth commenting on. What what kind of review did the one and only Mick Foley give your book? It was amazing, man. It blew me away, uh, you know, and, and he, he made some really good points. He started off by bringing to everyone's attention that he's a five-time bestseller, number one bestseller. Wow. Books. wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, so so he's an author, Daddy. <laughs> you know, I mean, he, he's got history. And, uh, you know, and he, he really says, Ron, your book is fantastic. You know, he says that I compared it to Jaws, too. He compared it to Jaws, just like a lot of the people that are writing these reviews that are buying it on Amazon. I really thank Mick for that. It was really nice of him to read the book and uh, and to be so nice and polite with his review. and. I think he's going to put a review on Amazon. If anybody wants to go to Amazon.com and uh, search for Brutus, uh, you can scroll down there and see reviews. And there are many of them there now. All of them, I'm really, really happy to say, are five-star reviews. I have not had a single review under five stars. I really thank Mick uh, for his comments and for his review. And I look forward to people reading this book. I think they're going to find that it's something uh, different and special. 
No doubt. And for Mick Foley to get his attention on the book. But imagine this as the scenario. An African lion has escaped and is somewhere in the Great Smoky Mountains. That's, to me, wow. <laughs> now you're talking. All right, Ron, good job on that. And we're looking forward to reading that. And where are we headed next week? Well, we're going to have another today's training, obviously, to continue to make our listeners the most knowledgeable in all of wrestling. I'm going to do my best to do that. And we're, we're, we're going to wrestle next week with a Texas death match on Friday, September 17th, 1976, in the Coliseum. It'll be the first time there since March 14th of 1976, seven months since we had wrestled in the Coliseum. We're going back in that building. That will be, though, the longest period of time that there will be an absence of wrestling in that building for years to come. We're about to crank up the Coliseum, and we're about to crank up wrestling in the Southeast. There's no doubt about that. Our learning tree question uh, next week, questions are, what are some of the strange things that I've seen on the road coming and growing from matches, and where did I get the idea for the Southeastern tag crown belts that I used in the early 1980s? A lot of people want to know about these belts and where they are and how you got the ideas for them. And that should be a very interesting question to answer there. And uh, and I want to thank everybody, obviously, uh, as always, out there that listens to us each week and uh, all of your comments. I really, really appreciate them. And uh, we appreciate you riding with us every week. And take care of yourselves and others. And may God bless us all. Well done, Ron. This is David Summers thanking you for joining us and reminding you that Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.